uh, have the invitation, have the opportunity to uh, join with you, to uh, look at God's Word concerning our marriages and our homes. Uh, I heard that when I heard that Pastor uh, Kurt was going to be here, that was a blessing to me. He and I uh, served. Uh, He assisted me for some time in Tucson, and people used to say that he was my far side. And so uh, uh, I didn't say that, but some people said that, and so I believe it will be a great blend and that the Lord will speak to our hearts and lives. I believe these times are important. They are important, even if we don't always recognize uh, how important, how needy. Uh, I believe that God is interested in the state and the strength of our marriages and of our homes. And as we sit here this evening, there is a great need for God to be involved in each and every one of our homes. How many believe in revival tonight? You know, revival, if it's going to mean anything and do anything, must get into our marriage. If revival does not get into our homes and our families, then something is missing. And I I'm always reminded of David's uh, words in Psalms 101 where he said, I will behave myself wisely in a perfect way. Oh, when will you come near to me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. How many know in church we're all spiritual? I mean, in church we all are incredible. We look so saved. He didn't know any better. You think that's how we were all the time. But David said, where I want to walk with a perfect heart is in my house. The Living Bible said, how I need your help, especially in my own home, where I long to act as I should. He said, you know what, God, I need your help in my own home. And that's where I need you to touch my heart and touch my life. And so I'm believing that God will help us in that Uh, way in the next, uh, I don't know how many hours, uh, I was going to say days, but I guess it's uh, decreasing, but the next uh, number of services, and so you did get a courtship quiz, I'm not going to test you on that, that's for your benefit, and that you begin to look at your own heart and life and uh, see, you know what, how am I doing, take some honest introspection and uh, see, where am I, you know, where do I have a need for improvement because in a marriage seminar, you know, there's all kinds of interesting emotions. You know, there's a current of emotion happening here tonight. And everything from, you know, young married couples. How many have been married one year or less? This is your first marriage retreat. I mean, you know, this is, uh, this is, uh, it's a big thing. I mean, uh, they've, you know, uh, uh, you know, people in my church, uh, you know, they hear about marriage. They can't wait to get married cause, so they can go to their first marriage retreat. <laughs> We've got some people that they, uh, you know, they, we, we have ours in August. They're getting married in September. Pastor, can we come to the services? We're not staying at the hotel. We just want to come to the services, get some preliminary. We want God to speak to our hearts. And so there are young married couples here tonight. And so... Uh, yeah, there's uh, one emotion there. There's some old timers here, and there are all these different emotions. Everything from anticipation. Some of you have been anticipating, looking forward to this time, and believing God that there can be a renewal, a 
fresh infusion into your home, but there's also the emotions of dread. Because you're thinking, you know, how bad am I going to get beat up? You know, how bad are the preachers or are the Word of God going to beat me up? And there are all these emotions. And all I want to do is echo what Pastor Zebel said this evening. And that is that you would have a heart that is open to God. Contrary to his kind words, me being here or Pastor McKinney being here is not going to change your life. Two things that are going to make a difference is going to be, number one, God's Word, and number two, it's going to be the altar. We're not going to preach and then have an all-night counseling session, but there's something about an open heart that will meet with God as they are confronted by His Word and instructed by His Word that can make all the difference in the world and can do what none of us can do in our own strength, our own ability. So I encourage you to have an open heart. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn tonight with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. The Gospel of John, chapter 11. I'm going to do something a little risky this evening, and that is I'm kind of reaching back into some of my personal archives, and I want to minister something I felt inspired to preach to you this evening. I want to talk about Raising your marriage from the dead. Now, I don't think yeah, we need to have the right atmosphere, okay? So we want to set the stage. We want to set the atmosphere right now for all that God is going to do this evening. John chapter 11 and verse, verse 32. You know, there are some various uses for uh, coffins and caskets. I read of one person who used it as a coffee table in their home. But there is still only one real use for a coffin and a casket, and that is to contain dead things. And so much of marriage counseling is people, one or both parties, who are convinced that there's no longer any hope for their marriage. That whatever was there at one time, whatever they tasted and experienced at one time, is now dead. And so many people, because they feel that their marriage is dead, that whatever was there is no longer the case, then they what? They call it quits. They give up. They divorce. They try something else. There are lots of other people, while they are still married feel trapped in a a difficult marriage, feel trapped in circumstances that are very, very troubling to them, uh, and they feel trapped in a bad marriage. And we believe this evening in commitment. But you know, because we preach that God hates divorce, some people get the wrong idea, and that is He doesn't mind bad marriages. No, when God said, I hate divorce, he's not saying, well, you know what, if you just have a lousy marriage, it doesn't bother me. No, God wants to touch our homes as well, and he wants to bring some hope. And I believe this evening that this text that I would like to bring you to, which tells us of the Lord Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus, is one of the greatest illustrations of the God of the impossible, God who is able to bring life where there has been death, And I want to use this as a backdrop 
for the word of God to our hearts and to our lives and marriages this evening. John 11, verse 32. Let's read through verse 44. It says, Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when the Lord saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. And some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus again groaning in himself came to the tomb. It was a cave. And a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did not I say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound, hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. Tonight, I want to begin and talk with you about the graveyard of relationships. Because there should be no question, there should be no debate at all tonight that marriages are under assault. And I don't care if you're saved, filled with the Holy Spirit, in a church that's experiencing revival and the Word of God is going forth. Your home has been targeted by hell and marriages today are under assault. One A quote that I read said, Marriage has been ruthlessly dismantled piece by piece under the influence of those who believe that the abolition of marriage was necessary to advance human freedom. Demoted to one lifestyle among many, marriage is no longer viewed by the, quote, elite as a crucial social institution, but as a purely private act. And as we sit here this evening, we are all barraged almost daily with the sensual atmosphere of our culture that promotes throwaway relationships, easy divorce, sexual promiscuity, general selfishness under the guise of fulfillment. We live in a culture that is constantly barraging people with that kind of message. And none of us here tonight are immune from those sinister forces, and none of us are immune from the deluge of messages that declare war on marriage. And I believe if there is a need greater than all others for Christians, and that is that we learn to think biblically. See, lots of people come to church, are saved, their sins have been forgiven, but they do not think biblically. They do not approach life from God's vantage point. And so it is so crucial that we think biblically and we don't allow our minds and our attitudes to be shaped by our world. Someone said getting married is easy. It's living together that starts all the fights. All of us, it was easy getting married. It, It was the living together that was the real problem. And what drew me to this scripture 
for this evening's service is that we have the record of a heartache of personal tragedy. In verse 14, Jesus had said plainly, Lazarus is dead. I want you to think about that and let that sink into your mind this evening. He didn't say Lazarus has a few problems. He didn't say Lazarus is going through a difficult period in his life. He said Lazarus is dead. With all of the finality that that conveys, Lazarus is dead. The smell of death is all around that tomb. And, you know, if you were to be there, there's a coffin. Who died? And that coffin is a picture of a whole lot of marriages tonight. Marriages that have died. And there are people all around us this evening where you see the tombs of dead marriages and the tombs of dead relationships. Marriages where love is just as dead as Lazarus's corpse. Marriages where yesterday's hopes and dreams have all but died and faded away. Marriages where all meaningful communication has long since stopped and the average communication between husband and wife is aha, uh-huh, grunts, yeah, mm, yeah. And that's about it. Marriages where husbands refuse to be providers or spiritual leaders. Marriages where husbands complain, well, she won't follow me. Never mind that you can't follow a parked car. Marriages where wives have no intention of submitting to God, submitting to their husbands, or submitting to their word of God. Marriages where they have been torn by long-standing civil wars, and the saddest of all conflicts are civil wars. And as we look at marriage, there's no human relationship that has so much capacity for joy and blessing and delight and so much ability to inflict deep pain and deep suffering. There are a lot of marriages that are just like Lazarus's tomb and numerous epitaphs that have already been prepared for the headstones of that marriage. Things like, well, I don't love you like I used to. I made a bad choice when I married you. Isn't it interesting that after you've been married a while, oh, you see so clearly now. That was it. I made a bad choice when I married you. You know, they were the bad choice. You're always the perfect choice. Epitaphs like things will never change. I can't take it anymore. You hear husbands and wives say to each other, you've changed. And that's a brilliant statement. You know, who hasn't? I mean, just look in the mirror and you'll know that all of us have changed. Epitaphs like, I can't bear the thought of being married to them for another five or ten or God forbid another twenty years. And all of these are expressions that something has died in that relationship. I mention that because death in the Bible is a spiritual force. The wages of sin is death. And death is a spiritual force. It is the far-reaching state of separation. 
In the Garden of Eden, God warned them, in the day that you eat of this fruit, you shall surely die. And that death is that they were separated from the presence of God. And spiritual death is just that. It is separation from God. Physical death is the separation of the soul from the body. Eternal death is the eternal separation from the presence of God. And in the very same way, there is a kind of marital death. There is a kind of marriage where the forces of death have been warring against that home and there has come a separation between husband and wife. There exists this great gulf between the partners in that relationship. They're wondering what's happening, what's going on. One of the things is that death has entered into that relationship. Something in that relationship has died. Many of us tonight can remember back to July 29, 1981, what the media called the wedding of the century, where the Archbishop of Canterbury said it was, quote, the stuff of which fairy tales are made. It was on that day that hundreds of dignitaries assembled in St. Paul's Cathedral in London. Hundreds of thousands of people filled the streets of London and hundreds of millions of people around the world sat in front of their television sets to watch the spectacle of a royal wedding where Prince Charles and Lady Di, Diana were married there. This young school teacher is married to the heir of the British throne. It captures the imagination. It captures the fancy of the entire world. Many of us know the whole story, the whole saga there, that what began with such pageantry and promise uh, unraveled both publicly and painfully, and the remains uh, of their marriage was nothing more than an empty shell, uh, and followed by uh, Princess Diana's death, uh, and all of this reminds us, you know, the fairy tales that people got married and lived happily ever after. That's not true all the time in real life. There's real marital death, and the death of a marriage means some things. What it means is that the bands of commitment have been weakened, where that covenant until death do us part is now open for interpretation, where the emotional bonds of affection and attachment and intimacy have been replaced by hatred and bitterness and distance and resentment where the bonds of future destiny, that hope of living out our destiny together, that no longer motivates a couple. It's no longer thought as something important. And what's happened is things have died in that relationship. And the really tragic thing is the married couples, that's all they can see. They see that something has died. They may not publicly talk about it. They may not testify about it. But something has died in their relationship and worldly counsel has no answers for it. I'll talk to you tonight about the steps that assassinate our marriage. So here's a casket. Brother, would you check and make sure it's empty? No, no, you don't. We've all been to funerals. I'm not trying to be morbid this evening, but if that casket represented your marriage in a state or a process of death, the question is, what killed that marriage? 
What was it that influenced that home in that direction? How did that marriage end up here? Because no one expects or no one plans for marriage to fail. I have never married anyone in our... Con- and I'd love to say that everyone who was married in our church is fulfilled and happy and serving the will of God today. Unfortunately, that's not true. But no one that I've ever married has gotten married planning to fail. Every one of them has gotten married with the hope and in the anticipation of a long and fruitful and fulfilled relationship. And no one plans for a marriage to fail. And so death doesn't just happen. The death of a marriage is not so much an event as it is a process. That there are things that literally assassinate our marriages. A while back, I was reading about the Hollywood actor Charlie Sheen, and uh, this is going back to, I believe, 1995, and the article said that Charlie is no longer spending tens of thousands of dollars for companionship. It was Charlie Sheen who, uh, in the Heidi Fleisch trial, uh, was revealed that he'd spent more than $50,000 on uh, uh, high-priced call girls. But the article said he's no longer doing this. uh, And he said these words, or it says he's now a married man. Quote, just when I thought I was the luckiest guy alive, I got luckier still. And it talked about how he married a model by the name of Donna Peel uh, following a six-week courtship. And he said these words, she's my best friend. We've both found our soulmates. And uh, this was the first marriage uh, for each of them. And, uh, uh, you know, everybody was thinking this is a wonderful thing. Six months later, here's the second article. Charlie Sheen says he's divorcing his wife of nearly six weeks, six months. Model Donna Peel, because he was suffocating and, quote, had to come up for air. In an interview scheduled air that night, the actor told Entertainment Tonight, that he married the wrong person and really wasn't ready to get hitched anyway. Wait a minute, Charlie, six months ago you said, we have found our soulmates. We are best friends. And now you're saying we are suffocating. I made, uh, I married the wrong, you know, it wouldn't be Charlie that you're a creep and selfish. No, I married the wrong person. He said, I couldn't breathe. I like breathing too much. I had to come up for air. And then he said, I should have taken more time to get to know her. See, marriages, when they die, are not an event, but it's a process. Things that assassinate and things that kill our marriages. And you know, God in his word fingers some real culprits. Some of the things that kill, some of the things that assassinate our marriages. And so here in our scripture, Lazarus is dead. And in the generation that we live, an autopsy is in order, some kind of post-mortem, let's call Quincy in or Kay Scarpetta or somebody, we're going to do an autopsy, find out what happened to Lazarus here. Mary in verse 32 said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother had not died. The unbelieving crowd of Jews says, uh, if he loved him, couldn't he have helped him? Couldn't he that opened the eyes of the blind prevented this man from dying? And so there's some things tonight that we can identify 
that assassinate our marriages. And one of these is that many couples murder their marriages with their mouths. They murder their marriages with their mouths. Your mouth is a deadly weapon. And the Bible is very plain this evening. It says death and life are in the power of the tongue. That the words we speak have the, communi- the power to communicate life or death. They have the power to communicate blessing or cursing, health or disease, peace or war to our marriage and to our mate. Our words have the power to do that. And many times it is our words that are responsible for the slow death that is occurring in our marriages. What killed this person? A lot of times those marriages are murdered with words. You know, the stuff that goes on in some homes outside the church would shock you. Everybody's looking so good tonight. <laughs> and, 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 and you're doing real hard to put on that face, that expression like, whose home is he talking about? <laughs> you know, the stuff that goes on, the stuff that is said in some homes, and I'm not just talking about sinners out there, okay? I'm talking to you and I here tonight. Would shock you. Caustic women, words that belittle and tear down your husband. You know, my husband is a wretched, lazy, cantankerous louse. And those are his good points. But words that are biting, sharp, critical, ego-assaulting. And many, many times there are wives who don't realize the effect that their words are having on their husbands. You have insensitive men who are forever pointing out all the flaws and all the faults of their wife. My wife, she's fat. Family portrait would require an aerial shot. (laughs) Words that are critical. You know, I can't overemphasize this evening the power of our words to either build up or tear down our marriages. The power of our words either magnify or belittle our mate to strengthen or to shrink. And uh, this works both ways. But I was thinking, you know, women tonight, your words have such tremendous power. Your words can lift a weak husband and strengthen his heart until he can become what you've told him. Or your words this evening, uh, all the things you can tell him, you can continue to do that until all that he is dies. What killed it was your words. That's why the pattern this evening is found in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. It says, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good for the use of edifying, that it may minister grace to your hearers. 
So in other words, the Bible pattern is let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. That's not just time out, you stop cursing now that you're saved. It's time out the whole realm of our speech, that our words are designed to minister grace to the hearers. And if there's any place where grace desperately needs to happen, it's in our marriages. You know, it's amazing, and I'll say more tomorrow. You know, we have no problem talking to a sinner whose life's completely messed up about the grace of God. And yet in our homes, we want to exercise no grace at all. You don't measure up. You're not performing well. So if you want a corpse, then keep shooting your mouth off. Because our words can murder our marriages. Another culprit here that can assassinate our marriages and one is the or secondly is the failure to accept God-given differences. How many know tonight, and this is not something new that you've never heard before, but how many know that men and women are different? Very, very, very different. You know, First Peter chapter 3, verse 7 says, Husbands, dwell with them according to understanding or dwell with them with understanding you know so often there is the uh, complaint that uh, is spoken and the friction in the home well i just don't understand him i i just don't understand her well the bible says that we all need to make a study of our mates dwell with her with understanding and the reason that this is so important is the astounding differences between men and women. When the Bible says he created them male and female, that's not just talking about some plumbing differences in men and women. It is talking about the profound differences in men and women that God created. All the stuff today about unisex. You know, it's such nonsense. I mean, people that talk that nonsense are, you know, clearly unhooked their brains. And there are other people who think that when you get married, marriage means the loss of your identity. That if you're married, you can't have your own personality. You can't have your own identity. But that identity is somehow lost in this greater thing called marriage. That's a mistake. Very, very fatal to a marriage. The old... uh, uh, play and the later movie My Fair Lady, it was Dr. Doolittle and that who said, why can't a woman be like a man? You know, if she would just be like a man, everything would be fine. Because I don't understand my wife at all. I don't know how many counseling sessions I have sat in where that is essentially what people are describing. I don't understand. Why do they act? Why do they do? Why do they think this way? There are profound differences. There are neurological differences between men and women. Women are primarily, and now there are some exceptions, but generally speaking, women are right brain creatures. Meaning that there is a strong nurturing and caring element in a woman's personality, whereas men are are generally left brain creatures, that they function more on the realm of logic. Now, that doesn't mean that women cannot be logical. It simply means that the uh, general bent uh, between men and women uh, is in this area. One uh, study that I read about by uh, Dr. Roger Sperry back in 19, uh, I believe it was 1981, a uh, study that uh, earned him the Nobel Peace Prize, how the human brain functions in male and females, and what he discovered that between the 16th and 22nd week 
of gestation, boy babies have a chemical reaction in the brain that girls don't have. And there are two chemicals that slow down the function of the right brain hemisphere. Now, all that Dr. Sperry found out is what women already knew, that men are born with brain damage. <laughs> he, he discovered this. He confirmed this. But neurologically, there are things that happen. So that a lot of times, ladies, he is not rejecting you. It's just how his brain works or doesn't work. There are neurological differences. You know, I was just thinking of, you know, in the area of conversation. My wife, usually every Sunday morning, will call her mother or call her sister. She has no problem talking to her mother 45 minutes. Absolutely no problem. You know, when I talk to my mom, if I talk to her for five minutes, I've accomplished something of, of monumental proportions. How's things going? Fine. I guess that's all. Mom, I'll talk to you later. And, uh, you know, my wife can talk to her mother and, uh, and, and she can ask, you know, well, what, how's your mom doing? What's she saying? Mona can give me this kind of play-by-play account of all that they talked about. And, you know, like I said, I can talk to my mom. And Mona will say to me, what's your mom? How, uh, how, what does she say? Oh, oh, she's fine. Someone said you can ask a man about his honeymoon and he can tell you he took one. You ask a woman and she can go on and on with the details of what she wore, where they were, what they did, how she felt. I mean, her whole way of looking at the world is different from his. There are neurological differences. There are hormonal differences. What someone called the difference between mitol and Tylenol. Woman's ovulation cycle and the 14 days of chemical balance. What someone called the days of wine and roses. And 14 days of some degree of imbalance, what someone said, the days of thunder and lightning. <laughs> and, and moods change. Now, listen, I'm not justifying moodiness tonight. Well, I'm just in a mood. Well, get over it then. But, you know, moods can change. One day you'll come home from work. She meets you at the door with a rose stuck in her mouth. You know, and you begin to beat on your chest like Tarzan. You know, the next day you come home, she's not at the door, she's in the kitchen, she's not in the kitchen, she's in a chair weeping and crying. You say, what's wrong? And she looks at you and snarls and says, get your hands off me. All you care about is my body. And you're left there. Like someone said, what's the difference between a woman with PMS and a, smar- a snarling Doberman? Lipstick. Or what's the difference between a woman with PMS and a terrorist? You can negotiate with a terrorist. <laughs> there are hormonal differences. I mean, it's just, that's just the way it is. There are emotional differences between men and women. And, and uh, again, these are generalities, but they do prove true in, in, in so many situations where uh, women are, by their nature, creatures who enjoy the process. Men are concerned about achieving the goal. Women enjoy the process of reaching the goal. All men are concerned about is getting there. 
Like when you travel, you know, the women, they want to enjoy, the women, you know, often they want to look at the scenery. They want to enjoy the scenery. All he's thinking about is, honey, watch out for radar. I'm going to set record time. We're going to get there. Shopping. Women enjoy the process. I mean, you don't have, it's not that they have to buy lots of things. They just enjoy the process. You know, most men, forget the process. I know what I want. I'm in here. I see what I like, and I'm out of here. Someone said, women go to shop, men go to buy. There are emotional differences. And the point I'm making this evening is that if you don't recognize, if you don't appreciate, and if you don't accept, and if you don't adjust to those differences, then you can be slowly killing the vitality of your relationship and of your marriage. Another culprit in all this is the rejection of God-ordained roles. You know the verse in Ephesians 5:22: Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. And so what God is describing there are not uh, uh, culturally or environmentally produced roles, but they are God-instituted roles. They are built into the fabric of creation. In a parallel verse in Colossians 3, wives, submit to your own husbands as it is fitting in the Lord. Or in other words, these roles have been designed by God to reverse the damage that sin has caused and the damage caused by the fall. And so a rejection of these God-ordained roles can cause a lot of problems and can contribute again to the death of a marriage. I was thinking about some of these roles. You know, a woman's role is not to submit to her husband. That's not her role. Submitting to her husband has to do with an authority structure that God has ordained. Her role is not submitting to her husband. Her role is to be a helper suitable to him. And submission is just simply the attitude that she chooses to have in carrying out that role of being a helper suited for her husband, that she is willing to bring a sincere and godly support to his life and will give her strength to her husband in the context of that relationship of becoming one flesh. And it is a rejection of these God-ordained roles that bring about a death in a marriage. It is a husband's God-given assignment to lead as priest and prophet in his home. And I believe tonight that any spirit-filled woman can follow a husband's lead, but a carnal woman continually tries to usurp or dominate or control that, uh, and that rejection of those roles uh, creates friction in that home. And I believe if we were to look at that coffin tonight, and if that coffin represents so many people's marriages, we could find specific steps that led to the assassination of that relationship. Let me talk to you about raising from the dead tonight, because how many know we need God? Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain that build it. That is just as true in marriages 
as it is in building a church, in touching a nation with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is that we need to build God's way and we need to build with God's help. Except the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain that build it. That motto ought to be above every marriage here this evening, is God, we need your help and your working in our hearts and lives. And what is needed in so many marriages tonight is faith. You know, we hear about faith in lots of different contexts. We hear about faith that is necessary for salvation. We hear about faith in relation to the healing of your body, but just as crucial is faith for your marriage. Because I have found that in so many different marriages, the problem is people have lost faith, and as a result, they have ended up losing hope for their marriage. And it's interesting in our Scripture that what precedes the text that we read tonight is Jesus saying to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And Jesus said to her, Do you believe this? I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Do you believe that my present resurrection power is enough for your circumstances? Do you believe that in your marriage I am the resurrection and the life? And even if things have been dead, I can bring life into that relationship and into that home. Do you believe this? Now, Martha's response was, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. She didn't really answer his question at all, which is encouraging because it tells us you don't have to have perfect faith to see God work in your marriage. But the question that Jesus asked is, do you believe this? I believe we're looking at one of the centerpieces of the gospel because we read there in verses 43 and 44 how that as Jesus cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. It says, He who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes. His face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. Here, the great, great scene. You know, just imagine we read these things so often that we become so familiar with them, but Imagine the drama here. Here's the tomb of a dead man whose obituary had appeared in the local paper three days earlier. And Jesus said to his sister, Show me where you have laid him. And as he comes to the tomb, he commands Lazarus, Come forth, and out of death and out of despair came light and life. And I make that known this evening because there's something about resurrection power in life that can touch our homes and our marriages. In Matthew chapter 27, it says that when Jesus died, a number of significant things happened. First, the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom, signifying that the way into the presence of God had been opened to those who would believe in Jesus Christ. And then it goes on to say, and the graves of people were opened, that there was something when Jesus died and later when he rose again from the dead, that resurrection life was made available. And I can put all that together to say this, is that when Jesus comes by, dead things start to live again. When Jesus comes by your marriage, things that were dead can begin to live again. You say, but pastor, my marriage is dead. So was Lazarus. 
But my marriage stinks. So did Lazarus. But I've given up hope. So had Lazarus and his family. And the real challenge in verse 40 is he said, if you would believe, you would see the glory of God. When Jesus comes by, dead things can live again. The vision that Ezekiel had in Ezekiel 47 of the river that flowed from the throne of God, the Bible says uh, that it shall be that every living thing that moves, wherever the river goes, will live. That that river that came from the throne of God brought healing and brought life uh, everywhere it went. And in the presence of God, dead things can live again, whether that's dead minds, uh, dead hearts, uh, or dead marriages. Uh, he can bring life. Revelation chapter uh, 3 is the words uh, to the church. It's Sardis. Uh, and it says, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect uh, before God. To that church that was dead, Jesus said, Strengthen the things that remain. You know, Undertakers, morticians, refer to something dead as a person's remains. And Jesus said in that scripture, strengthen the things that remain. What he's saying is you give me what remains in your marriage. I don't care if it's just the ashes. You give me those remains and I'm able to work in your heart and in your life. Dead things can live again. Because, you know, God is not the problem in our marriages. You and I are. You know, over the years in pastoring and marriage counseling, I've said this before, marriage counseling can be very emotionally draining when you're dealing with two people especially people that you love and know maybe even people that you have married and presided over that marriage covenant to sit down with two people and there's a great deal of hostility that is in their lives towards one another it can be a very draining thing but you know and I do believe in marriage counseling, but, you know, I think we can cut down a whole lot of marriage counseling by this. And that is that when people come for counseling, never mind giving me the entire saga, that right now is going to be seven volumes, and every year there's a new volume that you're going to release, the saga that is called My Marriage. And, Pastor, do you have... Uh, 15 days where I can relate to you all that's going on in, in this, you know, is to stop them right at the very beginning. So now before I talk to you, I want to know something. And that is, do you want this marriage to work? Yes or no? Very simple. Do you want this marriage to work? Yes or no? Not, well, you know what, I, I do, but... Not, well, I, I just can't make up my mind because indecision or procrastination 
is a no. Do you want this marriage to work? Yes or no. Why is this important? Because your will must be engaged in a successful marriage. Your will must be submitted to God and fully engaged. If God is going to be able to work in your marriage, your will holds the key to the power and the possibilities of God in your marriage. Do you want this to work? Yes or no? Plain and simple. Do you want it to work? Yes or no? Because I have found a lot of times you're counseling people who have already made up their minds, I don't want this to work. I'm tired of this. It's dead. That's why so much counseling is really a charade. People who come, they don't intend to change. They don't intend to submit to the Word of God or do what it says or believe its solutions. They're simply going through the motions so that they can hypocritically say, I tried. See, the message all through the Bible is that nothing is impossible with God. Can you say amen? I have a couple in our church that they sit on the front row almost every service. And you know what? I am so glad that they sit on the front row because they are such an incredible miracle. Their marriage was just nothing but friction and strife and wicked pride on his part and just uh, uh, all kinds of problems that just simply escalated over years and years until finally he backslid, got away from God, the marriage dissolved, disintegrated, and yet God got a hold of his heart and life. He returned back to God, one of the greatest miracles of restoration I've ever seen, and God healed their marriage. They got remarried, and he and his wife and his three children sit on the front row. Every single service, they're beaming with the joy and the glory of God. And you know what? I, I wish I would to God that every situation could uh, be that kind of victory, but every pastor needs somebody like that. When everything else may discourage you, just take a look at them. Because God is a God of the impossible. When Jesus comes on the scene, dead things can live again. But the issue is, do you want your marriage to work, yes or no? Now, some of you don't know, but I wrote a book. Uh, you know, a lot of books, I guess, are sold at a pressure conference. This hasn't actually gone on sale there, but uh, I, I wrote a book. And uh, I actually didn't really, some people, I had ghostwriters, they wrote it uh, for me but and published it. And it's called Secrets to a Triumphant Marriage by Pastor Harold Warner. And then on the back, like a lot of books, you know, they, they put in, you know, you, have, you read books, what other people are saying about this. And so on the back, uh, it says what Christian leaders are saying about this book. And it says, Marriage is like a trial, and Pastor Harold Warner does not mince any words when it comes to marriage in this prolific treatise. You'll be convicted and sentenced to have a godly marriage after reading this book, Pastor Harrison Summer. Then uh, another said, This is a no-nonsense, straight-talking, easy-to-read, rubber-meets-the-road-my-kind-of-book, Pastor Bill Neal. My pastor, Harold Warner, has written the most incredible book on marriage. I predict that it will be a bestseller and will outsell my books, No Foolishness and No Independence, Pastor Rob Scribner. My pastor's pastor, Harold Warner, has done it again. Praise the living God. He has given us another tool to show God's people how to have a totally radical for Jesus marriage. I predict this book will outsell my CD, Come to Jesus. Praise the living God, Pastor John Schmidt. 
Man, another said, my pastor's pastor, pastor. Harold Warner has written a book on Christian marriage. You should read it because it was written by my pastor's pastor, pastor. <laughs> now that interest is just incredibly high, this is the book. Now, they, they, again, they wrote it with my name on it. Page one. Do you love God? If so, turn to page two. <laughs> if not, throw this book away. Page two. Do you love your spouse? Turn to page three. <laughs> then just do it. The end. <laughs> now we will be selling these tonight for special Phoenix marriage retreat cost of uh, 10 for $3 and uh, Do you want your marriage to work? Because I think sometimes we overcomplicate things. Now, that's the problem with reading, you know, and I do read books on marriage, but you know, after you read some books on marriage and you're ready to give up. You know, how can I do all that? I only have one lifetime. And I've read books where you end up getting discouraged. And while there are some complex issues, and while there are profound needs that men and women have, I believe sometimes we can overcomplicate our situation. Do you want your marriage to work, yes or no? Because if the answer is yes, we're talking about the Lord of Resurrection. And there's a pathway I want to close with that leads to resurrection because Jesus Ask the question, show me where you have laid him. And I want to just leave you three simple things that are involved in this pathway to resurrection. And the first was the command to roll the stone away. Rolling the stone away is you and I being willing to forgive and forget. Rolling the stone away unlocks the door of resentment that has imprisoned our marriage. It begins to remove the obstacles and it exposes our relationship to God. Roll the stone away. That if you're going to see new life and renewal come to your marriage, you're going to have to be willing to roll the stone away. Colossians 3.19, wives, or it says, husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter towards them. Or Philip's translation said, don't let bitterness or resentment spoil your marriage. Or one translation says, don't let harshness spoil your marriage. See, there's something about unforgiveness. There's something about the hurts of the past that imprison our relationship and seals the tomb of our marriages. And Jesus came on the scene. The first thing he did is he said, I want you to roll that stone away. And I want you to be willing to expose that hurt I want you to be willing to expose that relationship to God's grace and His power and His forgiveness. The second thing he, we find was the voice of command because Jesus cried with a loud voice and said, Lazarus, come forth. And what can bring life to our marriage is, first of all, God's Word as the basis of solving our marriage problems. Not Oprah Winfrey. Not Jerry Springer. Not the latest therapist but the Word of God and you and I becoming doers of the Word. 
Because the real issue is that men are not right and women are not right. But God's Word is right. And I have said many, many times in marriage counseling, you know what, it's, I'm not for you and against her or vice versa. I'm for you both. But the issue is you're not right and you're not right. God's Word is right. And being willing to submit your life and your marriage to the Word of God uh, that can bring life and can bring direction and wisdom in your decision-making. The third thing that is necessary is the reestablishing of intimacy because Jesus gave the command as Lazarus came forth bound hand and foot. He said, Loose him and let him go. You know what this speaks to me about as we begin to close this evening? I believe this is talking about the delicate and demanding task of loosening your marriage from all the situations that have bound it and restricted it and imprisoned your marriage. He said, loose him and let him go. That is a process. And I mention that because a lot of times we can come and we can forgive one another. We can roll the stone away and begin to exercise forgiveness in our relationships. We can uh, uh, step into the promise of new life uh, and say, Lord, we want your word to begin to guide and to direct our lives and our decisions. But you know what so many married couples struggle with is the grave clothes. There's new life, but the grave clothes of old decisions and past sins and words that have spoken, you still have to deal with those grave clothes. And that delicate and the demanding task of loosening those things and untying our relationship from all those things that have bound and restricted it. And I mention that because, you know, you can bring forgiveness into your relationship. You can bring the Word of God into your relationship. But so often when you're still dealing with those grave clothes that hang around, you end up getting discouraged. You end up getting discouraged and you end up backing off from obedience. Because you don't see all that you want to see, you start to back off from obeying God in your home and obeying God in your marriage. And the promise of God is that if we will reestablish intimacy, that process, that, that new life and new things can begin to happen in our marriage. And really tonight, what I'm saying in closing is that the choice is yours. The relationship can either live or die. Do you want the marriage to work? Yes or no. If the answer is yes, we're talking about the Lord of Resurrection. If the answer is no or maybe or I'm not sure, a rebellious, self-willed person can bind the hands of God in their lives and in their homes. But I believe tonight that there is a wonderful, wonderful promise. And again, I understand the dynamics of a marriage retreat, that there are people here tonight that you just are, are madly in love with one another, and that is a good thing. The other people that you took that courtship quiz, well, I'm doing okay. The others, that there's a serious problem here. Some of you... As I said, look forward to this night and this weekend. Others of you didn't really want to come. But because of pressure and various other things, you said, all right, I'll come. Some of you have come. Well, I'll come, but 
what he 